This is the story of Grace Darling and the SS Forfarshire. But before I start, I'd like to thank Dr Erin Farley of the Local History Centre in Dundee, who's furnished me with some excellent newspaper articles. I'd also like to thank the good people of the Dundonian History for All group and the Hull and East Yorkshire History Forum, who also provided me with information for this story. OK, here we go. I hope you enjoy it. The SS Forfarshire was built in Dundee in 1834 by a Thomas Adamson. It was powered by three boilers and two steam engines. Like many steamships of the time, it also carried masts with sails. At a cost of £20,000, the ship was owned by the Dundee and Hull Steam Packet Company and plied its trade between the Humber of Hull and the Tay of Dundee. The ship would carry a cargo of cloth, soaps and hardware. It also had the ability of accommodating horses with livestock. For the cost of one pound and five shillings, a main cabin would furnish the passenger with an elegant room, fitted with fine furniture, wooden panelling, gold frame mirrors and gilt-edged china, illustrated with the forfeiture itself. Fifteen shillings would buy you a four-cabin. These second-class passengers enjoyed quality fittings in their below-deck cabin. The deck passengers, however, after paying seven shillings sixpence, would receive a benched area up on deck, that contained some protection from the elements. The route from Hull to Dundee was a popular one. As the railway was still in its infancy, ships were still the fastest and probably more abundant method of transportation. Barely a year since the Forfisher's maiden voyage, problems with the ship were already apparent. On the 5th of September in 1838, whilst docked in Hull, the boilers had been examined and the small leak that was found was closed up. The Forfisher left the Humber, setting sail for Dundee. It had only got as far as Flamborough Head when the leak reappeared. It continued for six more hours, but in this time, the pumps were able to keep the ship dry. Alan Stewart, the engine man, stated that he had frequently seen the boiler as bad as it had been described on previous journeys. Daniel Donovan, one of the ship's firemen, was less calm in his description. He stated that the leaks were considerable, to the point that the boilers were extinguished, needing to be relit after repairs. David Grant, much later in life, claimed that the boiler was not and could not be repaired. Even the passengers noticed the slow progress of the ship and the unusual bustle of crewmen as a consequence of the boilers. Mrs Dawson, a steerage passenger, travelling with her children, stated afterwards that even before the vessel left Hull, she had a nervous feeling from indications on board that all was not right. She went on to say that if her husband, who was a glassman, had come down to the dock in time she would have returned with him on shore. It was in this sorry state that the Forfisher pressed on north, passing through the fairway between the Farne Islands and the mainland at about 6 o'clock on Thursday evening. Around two hours later the ship entered Berwick Bay, but by now the leaks from the boiler were so great the firemen could no longer keep the fire burning. Two men were ordered to pump water into the boilers, but for all their hard work the water would escape through the holes as fast as they could pump it in. By 10pm that evening, whilst off St Ab's Head, with the storm still raging, the engines became entirely useless. The Forfisher was now in danger of drifting to shore. In near gale force winds, Captain John Humble ordered the sails to be hoisted and turned the vessel south to sail before the wind. David Grant is on record as saying that the sails were torn and tattered. The captain aimed to seek shelter by the inner Farne Islands, but by now the wind had picked up to gale force, the rain hammered down and a dense fog descended. 
due to lack of visibility, the experienced crew members on board, upon seeing waves breaking against the rocks, were left in no doubt as to their imminent danger, and that it was too late to do anything about it. The ship was heading straight for and hit the rocks. A portion of the crew, including the first mate, James Duncan, lowered a lifeboat down and made their escape. James Gall was one who helped lower the boat into the water. In the chaos, he grabbed the wrong part of the rope. As it ran fast through his hands, he could no longer hold on and was flung into the water. John Matson, the second mate, grabbed James and held his head above the water until they got their breath back. John Matson hauled James out of the water, breaking a number of his ribs in the process. With his two broken ribs soaked to his skin and frozen to the bone, James Gall took off his boots and bailed water out of the boat. Most of the passengers at this point were below deck, including a Perthshire man named Mr Ritchie. On being awoke, he jumped into action. Grabbing his trousers, he rushed onto the deck, where he saw James Duncan and seven other men jumping onto the lifeboat. Wasting no time, and like a Hollywood action hero, charged towards the lifeboat, with an extraordinary effort, leapt forward, grasped the dangling rope, and swung himself on the boat. The aunt and uncle of this gymnastic gentleman tried to follow suit. Tragically, they leapt from the forfeiture, but missed the lifeboat, falling into the sea. They died in sight of their nephew, Mr Ritchie. Despite this loss, he turned his hand to bailing water out of the boat, and like the others, used his shoes to do so, as the nine escapees, by chance, rowed their little boat through the only channel that kept them safe from the waves crashing into the rocks. David Grant later recalled feeling the oars scraping the perilous rocks. He said Mr Duncan shouted, Now lads, we have not much chance of our lives, but if any of you survive, you will be able to tell where and when this happened. After a few hours, they were spotted floating on the waves by the crew of the Montrose who picked them up and took them to safety. The nine who saved themselves are listed as follows. John Matson, second mate. James Hill, Alexander Murray, Robert Fox, Alan Stewart, all engineers. Jason Hall, coal trimmer. David Grant, unknown. Mr Ritchie, a farmer. And first mate, James Duncan. James Gall later recalls looking back at the wreck of the Forfisher, which before his very eyes was dashed against the rocks of Longstone Island. It was a second and fatal blow. The rear half of the ship was dragged into a notorious fast-flowing current called the Piper Gut. It sank almost immediately, taking the lives of all clinging on for dear life, approximately 40 people in total. The remaining passengers and crew clung on to the railings of the front half of the ship, which was currently teetering on Big Harker Rock. The storm was unrelenting, and the waves crashed continuously onto the wreckage, sweeping Captain Humble and his wife overboard into their watery graves. There was by now 15 people clinging to the wreckage. Worried about the stability of the wreck, they scrambled onto Big Harker Rock. It was on the rock, suffering severely from cold and exhaustion, clothes tattered and torn, with waves still washing over them, that their terrified cries were heard over the roar of the storm by the lighthouse keeper's daughter. Grace Darling had spent her whole life living in a lighthouse. Her father William taught her reading, writing and maths, along with other subjects such as history and geography. 
With her sisters, she had learnt to knit, spin, sew and cook. She would help look after the lighthouse, often spotted waving to passing ships from the top of the lighthouse, and sometimes accompanied her father out on the boat. By seven in the morning, Grace could make out survivors moving on Harker Rock, and so set off in the dangerous waters with their father William. On arriving at the rock, they found nine of the fifteen who had been clinging on to be alive. Four people had been swept to sea, and tragically, Mrs Dawson was clutching her two pale and lifeless children. William Darling climbed onto the rock and helped Mrs Dawson and three crew members onto the lifeboat. There was not enough room for everyone. All the while, Grace with oars in hand used her skill, strength and determination to keep the boat off the rocks but close enough to allow survivors to climb aboard. Despite fighting against the wind and waves, Grace and her father rowed the first group back to safety of the lighthouse. William and the strongest two of the rescued crew rode back out to the storm and rescued the remaining survivors. Grace and William tended to the nine survivors in the lighthouse, no doubt preparing food, beds and dry clothes. At some point that morning, they were all surprised by seven men bursting in through the front door. They were a volunteer crew from sea houses who launched after the wreck of the forfeiture was spotted when the fog began to lift at around 6am. The crew, which included Grace's brother, William, arrived at Harker Rock only to find three dead bodies. One was a figure dressed all in black. He was the Reverend John Robb of Dunkeld. The other two were a boy, James, and a girl, Matilda, the children of Mrs Dawson. The Sea Houses crew, believing it was too dangerous for a rescue to have taken place, and too dangerous to make it back to the mainland, sought refuge in the Longstone Lighthouse. Seeing a rescue had taken place and the lighthouse full, they took shelter in a derelict building. Waves kept bursting in and through as it was so ramshackled. They stayed in that building for two days until it was safe enough to journey back to the mainland. The nine rescued by William and Grace Darling were as follows. John Tullock, carpenter. John Kidd and John Nicholson, both firemen. John McQueen, coal trimmer. Jonathan Thicket. Cook and my relative, Thomas Buchanan, Daniel Donovan, James Kelly and Sarah Dawson, all passengers. They were looked after for around three days and nights when the weather calmed enough to move to the mainland and make their way home. Sarah Dawson and Daniel Donovan remained in Bambra as they were severely injured. From those picked up by the Montrose, Mr Ritchie, the rope-swinging action hero, had a few coins in his pocket from the trousers he picked up in a panic. He purchased clothes, and being a tall man, he needed the help of the local tailor to lengthen his trousers, and then inquired about the survivors at Bamborough. He then set off home to Dundee, stopping off in Edinburgh to report the news. James Gall, the engineer, lived all his life with his wife near Forfa, dying in 1888. The last survivor of the tragic night was David Grant. Not perturbed by his experiences, he voyaged with whalers to Greenland. He did eventually give up life on the sea and worked as a blacksmith in Dundee at Mr Swinton's coach-building establishment. He died in 1894. The only mark he carried of that fateful event was a bent forefinger, one he used to plug a hole in the lifeboat when they drifted in the stormy sea. Grace Darling became a national hero. Along with her father William were the first recipients of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution's silver medal. They also received a gold medal from the Royal Humane Society. 
Grace received two further medals from the Humane Societies of Glasgow and Edinburgh and Leith, as well as £50 from Queen Victoria. Just six years later, she caught tuberculosis. Grace Darling passed away on the 20th of October, 1842, aged 26. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. This story is part of a wider project, which is to find the relatives of the nine saved by Grace Darling, which, as you heard, I am one of them. Please share this to help me reach as many people as possible, and let's see how many we can find. Subscribe to my channel, Step Through History, to follow this journey and find many other stories from history. Well, that's me done. Thanks for listening. Until next time.